trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Are you ready to revel in some wrong think today? I mean, it's what I do every day, but I have a special guest joining me. Uh, Connor Basile is back. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Connor is the author of the book, The State is Always Right. And Connor, it's great to have you back on the show. I understand there's been a little bit of an update to your uh, to your resume since the last time we talked. What was that? Oh, yes. Uh, thank you again for having me, Brian. So, yeah, I'm a writer. I'm an author. I'm a Young Voices alum. And right now, I actually just launched my uh, a profile on Instagram for a little political commentary. So we'll see how that goes. I'm excited for that. Well, I'm excited for you. And of course, I'm grateful to Young Voices because that's that's how we met. Now, I have your your book here. Um, the state is always or the state knows best, rather, how corruption destroyed our law enforcement and left Americans defenseless. And I have to ask you this, Connor. Do you sometimes feel like that's that's an uphill message to, to promote? Because it seems like most people are trained to see law enforcement as, oh, hey, look, we're, we're talking heroes here. You don't question heroes. And yet, if you don't question heroes, sometimes you get some less than desirable circumstances, don't you? Definitely. I mean, as we've seen in the past few years, we had the narrative shift, especially with the legacy media blowouts in terms of riots and protests and the various cases of police brutality. And we've basically shifted this perspective from police being these uh, protectors, these guardians of our communities to, well, you know, they're still human beings and they're perfectly capable of being flawed and making mistakes just like anyone else. Unfortunately, in some cases, those mistakes are more grave than others. Uh, But we really do need to question the narrative, regardless of whatever side you fall upon, because at the end of the day, if we cannot question something then what's the point of doing anything? We're just going to go by the narrative and uh, suffer the consequences. No, I think that that's very well said. And, and your book covers this, I think, from a very broad historical perspective, but also gives us some very specific instances of here are some things happening today that we should really be aware of. And you also offer solutions. So this isn't just, oh, well, uh, Connor's complaining about this kind of stuff. Now, having set the stage here for this, you recently had an encounter with law enforcement on your property that, uh, that kind of underscores some of the concerns that you outline in the book. Would you share that story with us? Right. So uh, about a week or so ago, I had a, a little run-in with a police officer. So I went um, to my kitchen to grab a little midday snack, as we all do. And all of a sudden, I hear some uh, walking coming through the alleyway up towards my backyard. And I think, okay, it's a neighbor, someone else, um, perfectly normal. But then I look around the corner and I see a gun. I'm thinking, uh-oh. Hello. Well, I hope. Uh, <laughs> hello there. I'm, a, I'm awake now. So hopefully that's not a robber or anyone. It turns out I was a local police officer. And uh, I made myself uh, known. Uh, and clearly I wasn't a threat, you know. Uh, I made myself known very slowly as to not uh, arise uh, suspicion or um, alert. And he asked, who are you? Do you live here? What's going on? And I asked, well, what's happening? Why are you here? Can I help you with something? And he said that apparently there was a, um, a call for a potential break-in, an attempted break-in. Um, so he was surveilling the area. And I helped him around. You know, we we surveilled the, the perimeter and made sure there were no broken windows, no open doors, latches broken, etc. And it was just a false alarm in that sense. So... 
thankfully in that moment, you know, things didn't escalate. But it really made me think about how we interact with police and how they interact with us. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones bringing the weapons to wherever people are, right? They're the ones who inherently can instigate conflict or violence, right? So it's not only their responsibility to keep the situation calm and collected, but it's also our responsibility as well as to not exacerbate any potential arguments or fights or whatnot. So it really made me think about the idea of, okay, how do we interact with one another as people of the community and also police officers, even when you have a situation where they literally have their gun drawn? That's, I can't imagine, I, this has not happened to me. So I haven't, I haven't walked, you know, around a corner and went, oh, <laughs> there's a guy with a gun. Now, my dad managed a couple of different pharmacies as I was growing up. And I guess he inadvertently tripped the burglar alarm one night as he was, you know, closing the store up and getting ready to leave. And as he went to make sure the front door was locked, he said, I, I got to the front door and I could see, you know, a guy's hand with a pistol in it just around the corner. The guy's body was out of sight, but he could see a hand holding a pistol. And he was like, oh, crud not knowing it was a police officer who'd responded to a burglar alarm. But it, it seems like you know, that would have been back around 1980, quite a while ago. But attitudes were somewhat different. So, and, and Connor, correct me if I'm wrong. It, it seems today like police are trained to uh, to be much more aggressive when, when encountering the unknown. And, and, and I know that sounds like I'm throwing them all under the bus, but it, it seems like the, the procedural training they receive is, you know, you become the cause if there's any question. You know, you take the initiative and, and gain control without asking questions first, necessarily. I mean, does that jive with with kind of what you have seen as well? Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm sure from a, a strategy point of view, they have to come off at least a little bit more aggressive so as to uh, protect themselves from potential harm and violence. I mean, definitely, if you're responding to a potential break in or a fight breaking out or anything, of course, you want to protect yourself and those around you. So they they definitely would come off in those situations as more cold, more maybe even authoritarian. But at the end of the day, you know, you're dealing with potential loss of life. So I definitely understand it from their perspective. However, from the citizen's point of view, we have to realize that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, someone can get seriously hurt if your interaction with this with these people turn hostile. So we definitely have a culture now in our society where people are afraid of the police, whether that is from personal experience or what they see on TV and legacy media telling them to be scared. At the end of the day, we have this big gap in between how the police see us and how we see them. What, uh, what do you find most concerning about how the police are trained to view the public? Well, and I mentioned this in my book, The State Knows Best, how some communities, some police departments have basically incorporated strategies of community policing where they don't only um, go out and enforce the law in these communities, but they actually take part in community functions or activities and they actually get to know the people that they are protecting. And in that way, you don't only have this strict professional uh, divide between police officer and citizen. You have actual people who are participating and involved in the community. And we find a lot of instances where that actually benefits crime reduction rates. Um, I mean, who doesn't want to know who's protecting them, right? You don't want a stranger with a gun to come up one day, like with, with what happened with me. I didn't know this man. I didn't know even where he lives. He might not even be in the same town as me. But it just helps us as people, as regular human beings, know that the people who are sworn to protect us and our lives, ideally, actually care about us as opposed to just their job. 
No, that that makes sense. And and it seems like, you know, police who actually live their lives among the community, you know, you run into people shopping at the grocery store and whatnot, are, are going to react much differently than, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to use the example of you know, a police officer who's sent to patrol in an inner city neighborhood where he clearly isn't part of the neighborhood. You know, they're, they're kind of seen more as an occupying force than as, hey, this is one of our neighbors. Exactly. And... I mean, we we can't uh, we can't forget the the damage that the legacy media has done with this. Uh, for example, the Michael Brown case, right? They spun it so far out of proportion to think that oh, this poor innocent uh, little boy, he was uh, he was just gunned down by a racist police officer. Where in reality, especially with the autopsy uh, data that came out, it shows that he was attacking the cop and tried to wring the gun out of his hands. But then the media kept lying about it. They kept spinning that story to get clicks or likes or views, etc. And we see this happening now. I mean, just a, a little while ago in Harvard, we have a professor, Fryer, Roland Fryer, who came out with data saying that he found no significant data uh, that supports the notion that uh, police shootings were inspired by racial bias. And that, that really made the waves. You know, people did not like that. But, uh, you know, when data is shown, people uh, start to get into a little denial. Now, we've, we've only got, uh, we got about one minute before we have to go to break, but we'll come back to this. I want to talk about uh, this, this professor's studies. It didn't go well for him with his employer, right? Didn't, uh, didn't he find himself at odds? He was at Harvard, correct? Yes, Harvard, the most uh, distinguished and trusted uh, institution that we love, right? Once upon a time. <laughs> Things may have changed a little bit. I've, I've just heard of some rocky, uh, rocky road they've been down in the last few weeks. But um, my understanding is he he actually received so much pushback that I, 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 is he still at Harvard or did he leave? Uh, I have to check. I think I think he may still be in there, but I'll have to do a quick check. Okay, so uh, let me just put this put this out there. We'll come back and talk about this in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Connor Vasile. He is the author of The State Knows Best, and I will include a link in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com where you can check out his book, where you can buy his book. And and it's I think you'll find it very enlightening on what's happening to law enforcement. And when we come back from the other side of these commercials, we will uh, we'll talk a little bit about this, uh, this Harvard professor, his research, which shows, no, actually, most police shootings are not based in, you know, racial injustice. That kind of, that's going to rock a few people's worlds and maybe, maybe take, take their, uh, convenient uh, podium away from them. All right, we'll be back, Connor, in just a few moments. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I have Connor Vasile as my guest, and he is the author of The State Knows Best. All right, Connor, let's talk a little bit about Roland Fryer and Harvard. Tell me a little bit about his study of police shootings and and how it turned that media narrative, well, you know, cops are inherently racist, on its head. Right. Thanks, Brian. So basically, uh, economist and professor at Harvard, Roland Fryer, he basically did a years-long study and found that there was actually no racial bias or racial motive when it came to police shootings. Uh, and he's gotten a lot of criticism from this. I mean, you have other professors, especially from Harvard, who are saying that, well, even though his studies depict that there's no racial bias, uh, he basically just boils it down to... Um, 
a statistical issue, right? Um, just because we have no issues, no problems with actual bias, that doesn't mean that just because uh, he didn't find out that there isn't any underlying uh, racism uh, in these issues. So what's interesting with this is that they're trying to now skew it, saying, well, even though he didn't find any actual racial bias, at the end of the day, you have minorities, black and brown people, still being pulled over, still being arrested, still being um, even shot at rates higher than whites. And therefore, there has to be a racial bias involved, regardless of what the data finds. So causation versus correlation. I know these academics, they're not very good at uh, deciphering between <laughs> the two. Well, what are you going to do? Uh, so we have this narrative set out now where it still perpetuates where we have to perceive the police as this racist authoritarian force out to just persecute and arrest and shoot minorities. When in reality, that's not the case. I mean, statistically, more whites are arrested and even shot at than other minority groups every single year. Hmm. Now they can make a per capita argument and saying, oh, they arrest well more of these minorities as opposed to um as opposed to whites as a percentage of their overall population. But at the end of the day, they are willfully ignorant to all the other factors that are involved, whether it's economics, whether it's culture, whether it's education, and they are willfully blind to the fact that all these factors also come into play. Dang. I mean, as, as I'm hearing you describe how um, Professor Fryer's critics have reacted, it's almost like they're saying, well, regardless of what you found, we see racism that you can't. Oh, it's implicit, Brian. Did you not know that? We're all racist, apparently. Oh, well, that explains yeah. so much. I, I guess I'm just wrong about everything. I should probably shut up and do what I'm told. Uh, absolutely. I mean, hey, these are people who are paying 60K plus a year for a nice piece of paper, so you better listen to them, you know? Well, it's but the sad thing, as you pointed out, is like with the, uh, the case of Ferguson, Missouri, and, and Michael Brown, this didn't just end with, well, there were some pretty nasty accusations made against the, the police officer. I mean, it was like it was riots and it was it started whole movements that have have since uh, taken off and, and taken on a life of their own. It's uh, it just it seems like a kind of a manufactured kind of outrage, but it's one that like wildfire has caught hold and is is being driven, I guess, by the winds of change. Absolutely. I mean, this whole thing is manufactured. Uh, we see crisis actors pop up, especially since uh, the times of, uh, let's say, Mark, Michael Brown and others who were uh, shot by the police. And we're seeing now people who are directly profiting off of off of this misfortune. And I mentioned in my book, The State Knows Best, that BLM, our um, political activist organization, has made tens of millions of dollars off of the misfortune of other people and their families. And meanwhile, they have done nothing to contribute back to the communities they purport to support. So this even, whole thing even worse, is, they've absconded with $90 million. And as far as I know, nobody's really been held accountable. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money, but Hey, they bought some nice homes and um, I don't know. It's, it's curious. There, there's, uh, there's kind of a double standard there. If I think if anybody else did that other than a, you know, an oppressed victim group, um, there would be some kind of official inquiry or official outrage, but I, I hear nothing. Definitely. I mean, some low-level uh, participants and actors have been arrested and prosecuted okay. for uh, various um, uh, various corruption instances. But at the end of the day, the organization as a whole and the uh, the ones at the top, the top-level ones, yeah, they're not they're not going to see any jail time uh, anytime soon, unfortunately. 
Well, I guess it, it just goes to show you that uh, manufactured controversy can be a very profitable thing, not only in terms of money, but in terms of power. And, and I guess I'm kind of torn. Which, which is more important? I'm kind of leaning towards, I think this is more about a power thing than simply, you know, a really uh, successful grift. Definitely, but I do also see how money can play a big part in it. I mean, look at how the public perceives police, right? And our law enforcement in general. You have all these schools, public schools, private schools, uh, after school programs, etc. You have all these institutions and people are actively promoting this idea that police are racist, they're oppressive, etc. You need to be fearful of them. And where, why are they doing this? You got to follow the money. They're getting that support somewhere. And something tells me that BLM and other like-minded social activist groups are contributing to that. They're supporting this message and this narrative that police are this un- inherently evil and unsafe entity. And in order to combat that, we need to step up. We need to get involved in our uh, children's education, whether that's be in their board of education, et cetera, and actually take part and make our children realize, listen, it's not perfect. The system at times, yes, can be corrupt. And at the same time, you're also protected by these people. And there are some very good police officers out there who are genuinely good people who care about their communities. And we need to step up and make sure that these organizations, these social activists, so-called classes, do not bastardize the idea of a healthy, safe community. And we also have to be really conscious of that whole availability bias. Um, look, I there are certain accounts I follow, for instance, on X, um, who are very acutely aware of police misconduct or brutality. And, you know, if you, if you sat down and you watched, you know, even 15 minutes of some of the videos that they've posted, you might be tempted to come away with the you know, conclusion, well, cops are just violent thugs looking to avenge whatever wrong was visited on them as kids when they were bullied. And and it would be hard to shake that that belief that, wow, this is what all cops are like. But as you said, they're not all like that. There are some really great people out there. I think most people enter law enforcement for the right reasons. I do have concerns, though, about how the, the system itself is changing the mission of how police are used. I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on how their, their mission has changed from order and and keepers of the peace in fact they were called peace officers but now we've got this more rigid law enforcement mentality that's taken hold definitely i mean just to touch on that point you said about the negativity we see online i just saw this video um kind of went viral this police officer uh punched a civilian in the face for no reason just a disagreement over a traffic issue and he was just suspended for a few weeks no investigation, no charges, no nothing. It's completely ridiculous. However, that does not take away from the fact that people uh, must realize that there are generally good police officers out there. And right now, you're actually seeing cities misusing their police. Uh, they're making them ignore crimes. They're making them uh, take less in for arrests. And they're just completely abusing the system for their own political gain. So we really need to boost our community and make sure, listen, police is not perfect. But at the end of the day, they need to protect us. And we also need to support them in their endeavors, but that's a community. That's a community uh, endeavor, not just one side or the other. Okay, we're we're down to our last minute of the show, so let's take some time to talk about uh, your book and where people can find it. Right, thanks, Brian. So, I'm the author of "The State Knows Best." You can find it on Amazon, uh, I either in ebook or in print. If you want to check that out, I'm also on Twitter slash X Connor underscore Vasile. 
And if you'd like to actually follow me on my new Instagram, it's virtues, V-I-R-T-U-S dot speaks. And uh, we're going to have some good content out for this. Thank you for having me, sir. Man, I'm, I'm really looking. I mean, I, I don't spend a lot of time on Instagram like my kids do. But uh, now now that I know you're, you're publishing content there as well, I'm going to have to trip on over and, and take a quick look. Connor Vasile, thank you so much for being on the show. We'll have you back again. I, I, something tells me this is a subject that's probably going to come up a few more times as we move ahead. Thanks, Brian. Just a hunch. Have a great day. All right, stand by. We're going to talk a little bit more. We're going to go into a little more depth about what has happened to right and wrong. Why are some things crimes and some things not crimes? Less than 800 bucks? Oh, please, yes. Walk out of CVS with all of that merchandise without paying for it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being a part of our program today. And thank you to the sponsors who make this possible, including quiltandsew.com, Ironsight Brewing Company, tmcpnation.com, also lifesavingfood.com. By the way, I have links to every one of those sponsors in my show notes, which you'll find at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. So let's take a moment here to talk about how do you clarify your core beliefs? I can tell you from firsthand experience, there's nothing quite like finding yourself standing apart from the crowd to make you stop and question, okay, do I really believe this or not? And the reason is for for a lot of people, and this is true for me as well, uh, the first time you find yourself standing apart from the crowd, I mean really apart from the crowd, as in, okay, nobody here is agreeing with me. In fact, people are starting to shout things at me or the, the crowd is getting hostile. It hurts. It's not fun. It, and it makes you question. The first time somebody really gets up there and starts denouncing you or you get called out or people are writing letters to the editor or making statements on social media attacking you, you have to question. You'll start going, wow, do I really believe this stuff? Just because it's so miserable to be on the receiving end of an attack. Now, that's always been the price of, uh, you know, that's the price you pay for speaking the truth. It just is. But the first time it happens to you, I'm telling you, it's a huge wake-up call. And as you're sitting there thinking, okay, do I believe this enough? I'm willing to submit to the, the opposition and to the slings and arrows, as Shakespeare would put it, you know, the, that come along with that. Sometimes it doesn't feel so good to realize you're the outsider. So I want you to hear this commentary from Paul Rosenberg, which talks about not only is it a good thing to be the outsider, it's a very necessary thing in order for anything to really progress. Here's how he puts it. He says, years ago, I engaged in a long Usenet discussion with another gentleman on immigration, life in the third world, etc. After some back and forths, the gentleman proposed a scenario. He said, what would happen if the two of us were dropped naked and with absolutely no way of calling for help into the poorest, most desperate spot in India? And the question is, would we stay there living the rest of our lives as the locals do? And if not, why should we be able to extract ourselves while they could not? Paul Rosenberg says we decided quite quickly that the first days or so or the first day or days would be unpleasant, but that we would make our way out of the situation in short order. Now, they're talking as individuals, okay? There's not like, well, as a team, we'll get our, ourselves out of here. It's like, no, we'll, make, we'll both make our way out of there individually. So the question then became, okay, well, what was it that would empower your self-extraction? 
More discussions ensued, but it wasn't hard to see that it wasn't their better education that would ultimately stand behind it. In the end, that decision to just, instead of resign yourself to, well, I'm here, I guess this is just going to be my lot in life, it came down to two things. Number one, we believed that we could, and we should, live better than that. And number two, we had zero belief that this situation was in any way ours. You understand that? Now, he says, after still more reflection, it became clear to me that number two was the crucial point, and that believing we could do better would follow it closely, based merely on self-reference. In other words, once you believe, I am in no way beholden to this situation, believing that you can do better follows naturally. You starting to connect the dots here? You seen where this leads? From here, he talks about uh, outsider images come from various sources, but one of the most widely recognizable, and he says one of his favorites for decades, has been Kirk and Spock from the original Star Trek series. Now, when Kirk and Spock beamed down to an Earth-like planet, as they did fairly often, they displayed the outsider mindset. In other words, they were considerate of the people they found on these planets, but were perfectly clear that the rules they lived by were retrograde at best. That the locals took them seriously was an unfortunate relic of their ignorant past. And very interestingly, he says, we see precisely the same sentiment in the New Testament, coming from Saul of Tarsus, in other words, St. Paul. In about 54 AD, he wrote this to a small group of proto-Christians. I, or we, use this world while not abusing it. Now, that's the same view as Kirk and Spock's. And it's a consummate outsider's view, as well as a highly productive view. And notice that this viewpoint doesn't drive people to political solutions. And in fact, it drove Paul's readers to separate from such things. We are not of this world, they would say. Just as Paul Rosenberg and his correspondent would be saying in their most desperate India scenario. So what he's getting at is being on the outside is where the cool things happen. He says, please believe me that the coolest things happen outside and not within the hierarchies of the status quo. Trudging along in the middle of the crowd, that's a recipe for a boring life. By the way, that includes getting drunk with the crowd, going on political rants that that your parents will hate, and other forms of merely reactionary rebellion. No, he says, outside is where personal computers came from. That's where the internet came from. It's where Bitcoin came from. It's also where Abraham, Jesus, Tesla, Einstein, and a dozen other crucial people came from. Nearly everything cool comes from outside. Inside is where cool things are corrupted, ultimately either fading away or being turned into tools of conformity and abuse. Now, Paul Rosenberg says those of us who have seriously separated from the world in some significant way know the liberation that came from it. Those who have not, he says, should give it some thought. Again, this is just another example of why I love Paul Rosenberg and I love his, his thinking. Look, I get it, and I think he understands as well as anybody. It's not comfortable to be an outsider until you realize that's where your greatest potential is going to be realized as well. Yeah, it feels safer going with the crowd, but it's, it's an illusion of safety. And I'll, I'll use the analogy of, you know, the crowd is that herd of lemmings all running for the cliff. The person who finds themselves outside of that herd, well, they're going to be seen as an oddball. In fact, uh, you know, the, the herd is going to think you're crazy for not marching with them. But sometimes it's critically, 
important. And I think especially, I love that he ties it to, to what St. Paul said about, you know, using the world but not being part of the world or not abusing the world. We, we have to live within the world, <clears throat> but we don't have to be a part of the world. I've seen a couple of memes that express this, I think, in a fairly humorous way. Um, you know, and these are, these are the cartoon memes of the bearded-based uh, dude, you know, answering questions from someone who's really concerned. Well, you don't send your kids to public school. Aren't you, aren't you worried that they're, they're not going to be properly socialized? And the person responding, the bearded-based dude, is like, that's the point. I don't want my kids to fit in with normal society. Have you seen what normal society has become of late and is becoming at the moment? Now, that sounds like, well, you're throwing everybody under the bus, but think about it. People who are following the path of least resistance, trying not to make waves, they don't want to get, you know, attention, they don't want, they don't want to be the whack-a-mole who's still up, you know, when the mallet comes down. If you can be comfortable being outside of the mainstream, and I, I'm not talking about go be a unabomber and live in a cabin in the woods writing, you know, your manifesto while you're assembling, you know, bombs to mail to people. No. It's just being willing to be true to your principles, even if that means at some point or in some way you have to separate yourself from so-called polite society. Look, believe it or not, we do this every single day. We do it in choosing the company that we keep. We do it in the material that we consume, the, the data that, that we try to, to find and, and incorporate into our lives every day, that shapes us. But Paul's got a great point. If you want to see the people who actually have moved the needle and made life interesting, typically it's outsiders, not people inside the system trying to fix the system. Some people always walk, you know, to a little bit different drummer. I think we sometimes think of him as introverts or maybe just a little bit off. Ah, he's probably somewhere on the spectrum. Maybe there are people who just understand that uh, real peace of mind and, more importantly, peace of conscience is the product of following your core principles. Now, that leads us to the question, okay, so what are your core principles? Have you ever sat down, written them out, clarified them? My friend Tyler has, uh, has really influenced me in a very positive way about this. In that uh, when we first became friends, when we, he had listened to my show for some time. And since we lived in, a, in the same area, he said, you know, let's, uh, let's grab some barbecue sometime and, and talk. One of the things he shared with me was kind of his personal list of these are the things that I believe. And it's, it's not a superficial list. It's not like two or three little points. Well, I think puppies are cute and the sky is blue. And, I mean, he dug deep about what is right, what is wrong, what, to, what should I do as far as, you know, what are the primary priorities and responsibilities in my life? And I was so impressed with his list that it prompted me to sit down and, and write my own list. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do. By the way, I recommend get away from the electronics, okay? Don't sit down at your computer or, you know, don't try this on your phone. Just Put the electronic devices away. Go someplace where your spiritual antenna have good reception. In other words, where it's quiet and peaceful. And think hard about who am I and what do I stand for? Some of the answers might actually surprise you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. This is our final segment today. Two articles that I think are critically important, so important, in fact, that I include them in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. It's March 1st, 2024. And I want to include them on the show today. First one is from Jay Davidson. This is from AmericanThinker.com. It's a way out of the chaos. And, And what I love about this article is he acknowledges we see the problems. Most of us recognize the growing chaos, but, you know, we wonder, what do we do? And, and for a lot of people, the default reason is, well, it's an election year. I guess we step up and we vote in such a way that it fixes the problem. But the point here is you can't fix government. It is in the very DNA of government to do the things that we're seeing done to us and on our behalf daily. But you can fix yourself. Here's how Jay Davidson puts it. He says, there's a persistent mindset that thrives on chaos. In fact, uh, he, he links to an article by Andy Kessler from the Wall Street Journal about America's Chinatown politics and does a great job of bringing order to the chaos. His conclusions, he says, are correct. But the agenda is obvious now. People in power are creating chaos. They're allowing lawlessness. They're destroying private enterprise, creating an endless stream of bigger-than-you crises to tear down our belief system, our moral and ethical lifestyle, and to sow disorder. Okay, so to what end? Well, it's to control people. It's curious that the forces of control and tyranny use our own government to coerce all citizens into compliance. In order to use the power of government, they must sow discord and chaos. And this discord gnaws at our conscious and rational mind. It resides in the periphery for decades. The final step is to reveal its evil intent. That intent, for reasons unknown by rational people, is to control the masses. Now, I love this next paragraph here. If the study of mankind, or the study of history, rather, tells us anything, it's that these forces have lived for ages, since mankind was first given the knowledge of good and evil. Now, at the times of greatest disorder and disruption, they come out of the darkness and promote their falsehoods openly. The point being, we live in such a time again. Rampant anti-Semitism is the first sign of this evil emerging from the abyss. And we're confused only because we refuse to admit the truth, and that is, there are people who crave power above all else, even above the salvation of their souls. We who believe in the individual don't have such cravings. We believe each soul is sacred. Each soul has the right to choose and not be coerced. The individual can survive only under the framework of the rule of law. Now, in America, the rule of law is our Constitution, and the the Constitution's entire writ is directed at controlling the government, not the governed. That's something a lot of people don't quite understand. So the first step in restoring order is to understand the meaning of the Constitution. The second is to to demand that our politicians adhere to its rule. The third is to believe in your own internal compass. You know right from wrong and good from evil. The fourth is to protect the individual, including yourself, at all times. Adhere to the ancient and well-proven knowledge of the ages, whether religious or philosophical. This is not the first time mankind has been challenged. This is just the first time we've been challenged. You see the difference? We have the roadmap. We are on the path This is why it's so essential to understand history as well as have that clear sense of right and wrong. Which brings me to my article of the day, which I'm going to share with you. This is from Michael Herman, from Michael Substack. It's titled The Ten Commandments. 
And the subtitle is, We Witness a Lot of Morality Plays. But what he's talking about here is what has happened in the world where morality has been cheapened and defined down into something that is barely recognizable. Now, he talks about his Catholic upbringing. He talks about, you know, having religion in his life on a daily basis. Says the constant with religion in our daily lives was morality. In other words, the constant was striving to live an ethical light. Life, rather. The church itself was the guiding light, a guiding force for living a principled life. Now, I appreciate his honesty here. He says, look, I'm not claiming that being religious, we always followed the righteous path. Tell me if this sounds familiar. He says, hell no. We strayed, strayed, and strayed again. But we knew. Every time we chose to go down the wrong path, we could have told you that we, that as we were descending, that, yeah, I'm not quite choosing the correct path here. I know I'm doing wrong, and I'm doing it. So, we may have fallen, but as ethical men, religious men, men of faith, men with a set of morals, principled men, we stood back up and tried to make amends, tried to live the righteous way. But his point here is that today it seems that right and wrong are subjective, not objective. As if people cross the line of ethical behavior and then wipe themselves completely clean of sin. As if they've done nothing wrong. They seem to wipe away wrong as, as no different than doing the right thing. In fact, they appear to choose between right and wrong interchangeably. And in Michael's uh, commentary, he says the worst part is party affiliation appears to play some role. Democrats will defend one of their own under attack for a transgression, yet pillory a Republican for the same behavior. And somehow this is all bled into our courts. So, for instance, are you watching this farce down in Georgia? The Fannie Willis fiasco has become a circus of lies under oath. All phone records, all text records, all evidence produced demonstrates a relationship between Fannie and Mr. Wade well before any dates they'll admit to, even if, as if, as if even the dates that they will admit to having a relationship are still ethical in the profession, but they're not. And they've lied under oath and yet defend themselves. They've perjured themselves on the stand, yet defend themselves. And the judge in the case appears to want to give them leeway that 50 years ago would have seemed absurd. It's just incredible. Yet Michael Herman says, I feel somehow as if they will be able to avoid any consequence. He says, we've descended as a nation into a world where morals, ethics, and behavior is no longer under judgment. In fact, judgment is seen as a bad thing. Why, to be judgmental? That's to live in, to be some kind of a prude, out of step, arrogant, high and mighty. But then he starts getting this into some specifics, and you're like, oh, maybe he has a point. After all, he says, we live in a world where Black Lives Matter can collect $90 million in cash, have the trustees abscond with the funds, and nothing. As if the funds were used properly, as if there was no personal enrichment by the board or, tr of, or, or the trustees, and there's been no condemnation at all from any quarter. Yet $90 million of funds intended to uplift a people disappears into the pockets of thieves and charlatans. So where's the hue and cry from the very community the money was meant to help? Where are the black leaders to cry foul? Where's the trial? Where's the jail time? 90 million, is, 90 million isn't exactly pocket change. Gone. Stolen. Oh, well. He says, I know Hunter Biden was a patsy for his father to grift on, the gov on his government job and sell out the American people in a big influence peddling scam. You know Hunter Biden is guilty. The American people know he's guilty. The people in power know he's guilty. Yet he walks scot-free. Absolved by Democrats and their handmaidens in the FBI, CIA, and other law agencies responsible for penalizing such behavior. 
since when does influence peddling get such a free ride from the law? And he says, I know this has been the case since at least the 1960s when the very strong threads of religion and the American people began to be ripped away. As so many became agnostic, as so many became secular, as so many, like he says himself, fell away from organized religion and toward a more secular existence. But he says, you know, O.J. walked from committing murder. Half the country cheered. They cheered beating a system that had been oppressive for generations. They cheered a high-profile win against a a jury pool that was always tainted. They cheered a murderer walking free because the message was greater than the crime. Breaking the system of oppression was greater than the single sin. And they cheered and stood as a murderer walked free because it provided a sense of exultation over a justice that was far too late to, to arrive. I mean, he talks about Senator Harry Reid lying about Mitt Romney never paying his taxes, Adam Schiff lying about, I have proof about Russiagate, which was a lie. People proud of their lies and prevarication. There's no longer any honor. Lies in service to a cause are seen not as lies, but they're seen as our truths. A badge of honor as long as the lies damage the opposition. So we're now a nation that can no longer recognize right from wrong. The lines have all blurred. Our moral compass has gone haywire. We no longer have a guide, a set of principles and commandments that dictate societal behavior. Religion as an institution and foundation, he says, no longer exists to provide our morality. Stealing under $900 at a time isn't theft. It's a sin magically washed away. In such a system, he says, who's the fool? Who's the chump? The guy stealing 800 from CVS and walking away free appears the victor while the righteous man who places his card in the machine to purchase his $50 worth of goods, well, he appears to be the fool, the chump, the idiot. If morality doesn't apply, isn't that the right way of looking at it? But his point here is that we all have a conscience. Absent the psychopath, we all live with regret at some point. So he says we better start regretting treading the the wrong path or collapse is nigh. And again, this is something you and I have control over. Okay? The thief, I can't tell him. You know, you need to change your heart. I mean, I can tell him, but I can't make him change his heart. But I can change my heart. I can make sure my moral compass is calibrated. Do you see the point? This is The Brian Hyde Show.